1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll read the entire chapter today. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Father God, we thank you so much for the word. I pray now for these few moments that you'd help us to quiet our hearts and concentrate on what you have for us today. Fill me with your spirit. Lord, let nothing stand in the way of your word today. And I pray the Holy Spirit would work in each life. I pray, Father, that all of us would think about this, how it applies to our lives. Lord, I know it applies to me, and I pray it would apply, uh, it would be seen to apply to all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue today in our series in 1 Corinthians, and we come today in chapter 8 to yet another question that was asked by the Corinthians of the Apostle Paul. Apparently, they had asked him whether it was right or whether it was wrong to eat meat that had been offered to idols. In the previous chapter, chapter 7, which we struggled through, they had asked some questions about marriage and sex and homosexuality and divorce and remarriage and all those kind of things. But now in chapter 8, they're asking another question, and it actually continues chapter 8, 9, and 10. He deals with this single question all throughout those three uh, about this matter of meat offered to idols. Now, I'm guessing some of you right about now are sitting there and you're saying to yourselves, okay, now, I can understand in the the first four chapters when we talked about division and disunity and uh, cliquishness and sectarianism, I can imagine you're sitting there saying, I can see how that applies. Uh, That makes sense to me. And and in in chapter four or chapter five, when we talked about immorality in the church and the need for church discipline and dealing with that, I'm sure some of you are sitting there saying, yeah, I can understand how that applies to us. And and maybe, you know, in chapter six, where it talked about not taking each other to court and uh, not dragging the church's dirty laundry before the entire lost world. I can see how that applies to us. And certainly chapter seven. It talks about uh, marriage and divorce and, and those, those issues of singleness and, and marriage and, and sexuality and all that. I can see how that applies to us, but what in the world does meat offered to idols have to do with us in 21st century America today? Is there anybody in the room this morning who will be honest enough to admit that you're thinking that? This has nothing to do with me. 
Cowards. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you for being honest. Because I know that probably many are thinking that very same thing. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to dissect chapters 8, 9, and 10, and we're going to see Paul's treatment of that particular issue. And I think we're going to learn, uh, he's going to teach some things. He's going to teach, number one, technically there is nothing wrong with eating meat offered to idols. We see that here in chapter 8. He says, technically, you're right. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think we're also going to see as we continue on into chapters 9 and 10, he, he, he starts building his case here in chapter 8, uh, that there are some very good reasons why you ought not. And then I think we get to his conclusion in chapter 10. And, and the way I read it anyway, I think he's saying basically, uh, the summation is you, you, you probably should not. And that makes sense in light of Acts chapter 15 and verse 29, and Acts chapter 21 and verse 25, where the instruction that was carried forth from the Jerusalem council said very simply, don't do it. Don't do it. Acts 15, 28 and 29 says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well, farewell. And so the instruction to the Gentile people was, don't do that. Don't eat meat offered to idols. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, does it have any relevance to us at all? Does it matter to us, this matter of meat offered to idols? And I want to say to you, yes, it does. I believe it is very relevant to us today, and we'll talk about that over the next couple of weeks. But there's an even more elementary question we have to ask before we ever get there. Is the matter of idolatry itself relevant to us today? This matter of worshiping of idols, just the very fact that, uh, that, that there were idols, is it something we have to contend with? today. And I want to look at that under two main points. The first point is, idolatry was a problem. The second point is, yes, idolatry is a problem still today. So let's look at those two things just for a moment this morning and uh, try not to hold you very long. Idolatry was a problem. You don't have to read very far in your Bible before you come across mention of idols. You don't have to read much of the Word of God before you see that it was a, a very common thing. People worship just a plethora of gods. Let me just mention some of them, just some that are mentioned in the Bible. In uh, Judges chapter 6, we see a false god by the name of Asherah or Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was the chief goddess of Tyre, referred to as the Lady of the Sea. Gideon, one of the first things we learn about Gideon was when he destroyed a statue of that particular idol that had been worshipped by his own father, Ashtaroth. There was also Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was a Canaanite goddess, another consort of Baal. Uh, Samuel led Israel in a great revival when he destroyed, uh, or when he, he led them to give up the practices associated with the worship of Ashtoreth. Baal is the one that you hear most of the reference to in the Bible. Now, when we were in Israel, our guide constantly referred to him as Baal. I don't know. Which, have you ever heard it pronounced that way? Baal. Well, he lives over there, and he's more used to the language, so maybe that's right. I don't know. I've always pronounced it Baal, B-A-A-L. But he was the chief deity of Canaan, and he's the one that you see mentioned all the time. The struggle between Baal and Jehovah came to its, its greatest head on Mount Carmel when Elijah called down fire from heaven and wiped out the prophets of Baal. Now, there was Dagon. Dagon's one of my favorites. Dagon was the chief god of the Philistines. Dagon was a god who had the body of a fish and the hands and head of a man. Now, why anybody would worship a thing like that, I do not know, but they did. And, of course, you remember the wonderful story when they captured the Ark of the Covenant and they put the Ark of the Covenant into the temple with Dagon. 
and uh, Dagon fell flat on his face before the Ark of the, of the Covenant. I love that. And so they stood him back up. And the next word they came in, and he had fallen flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant again. And now his hands and his hands and his head had fallen off, and all that was left was the fish. Literally, that's what it says in the Hebrew. The only thing that was left was the fish of Dagon. But that was one of the gods. There was Diana, mentioned in Acts chapter 19. You remember when the Apostle Paul got shouted down for like two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Diana was a grotesque, many-breasted female figure that was supposed to be a goddess of fertility. There was Jupiter and Mercury, both of whom were mentioned in Acts chapter 14. There was Merodach, also called Marduk. He was the chief god of the Babylonian pantheon, and he was Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's favorite god. At least until I, I tend to believe that Nebuchadnezzar came to know the Lord. I think, that's, I think that's what we learn in the Bible. But prior to that, he worshipped Merodach or Marduk. There was Molech, Molech, god of the Ammonites, perhaps the most horrible idol ever mentioned in the Bible. Children were sacrificed in fire to Molech. Solomon built an altar to Molech at Tophet in the Valley of Hinnom. King Ahaz and his godless son Manasseh both sacrificed their children to Molech in 1 Kings and Chronicles. There was Nebo. He was the Babylonian god of wisdom and literature. There was Nisroch, the Assyrian god of the Sennacherib. All these are mentioned in the Bible. Nisroch is in 2 Kings chapter 19. There was Rimmon, the Syrian god of Naaman the leper in 2 Kings chapter 5. Tamaz, the husband and brother of Asherah, the goddess of fertility, Ezekiel chapter 8. In Genesis chapter 31, you remember when Rachel and Jacob had to flee from Laban? And Rachel took the household gods and had them in her luggage with her. There was the unknown god that Paul preached about on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. There was the golden calf at Sinai. There were the two golden images made by King Jeroboam and Dan and Bethel. There was uh, the golden image in the plain of Dura in Daniel chapter 2 and Finally, there was the statue of the beast. There will be the statue of the beast. Revelation chapter 13. So all throughout the Bible, and certainly all throughout Bible times, idolatry was a problem. There's no question about it. But still, you're probably asking, what does that have to do with us today? Because I don't remember the last time I saw anybody sacrificing a child to Molech. Anybody seen that recently? Or anybody seen anybody running around bowing down and worshiping the golden calves? Or maybe carrying around your household idols in your suitcase, as Rachel did? I mean, we don't see that kind of stuff, do we? And so we could ask the question, is idolatry still a problem? But the answer is yes. Idolatry was a problem, and idolatry is a problem. I think it is just as real a problem today as then. Our idols just have different names. And they just look slightly differently. Idolatry is, after all, simply substituting something in the place of God, is it not? God said in his very first commandment of the Ten Commandments, he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment makes it even more plain. More, uh, plain. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, in the truest sense, we would have to say that idol worship is, it involves some image, right? It is the, it is the worship of some image, something that takes the physical form of some 
false deity, just as we mentioned a minute ago. Jeroboam, golden calves. Dagon, a fish with hands and, hands and face of a man. You know, all, all that physical form. But I would suggest today that I don't think we stretch the truth to say an idol doesn't necessarily have to be something that's physical. I think an idol is anything, anything that takes the place of God in our lives. So let's consider some of the idols that folks in Randolph might struggle with today. Or Rootstown or wherever you happen to be from. Some of the idols. Some folks struggle with the idol of wealth, do they not? Wealth. Some people simply worship the dollar. Some people's lives revolve around the accumulation of more. I read a quote. I thought it was interesting. It said, there is something perverse about more than enough. When we have more, it is never enough. It is always somewhere out there, just out of reach. The more we acquire, the more elusive enough becomes. Isn't that the truth? And yet some folks just simply can't get enough. They must have more. And wealth becomes an idol. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with wealth. I'd like to have a little bit more of it myself. And the fact is, some of the great people of the Bible were wealthy. Abraham was an extremely wealthy man, as were all of the patriarchs. Job, extremely wealthy man. Uh, some say that Job was really on the level in his day of, of being a king. David and Solomon, uh, the kings of Israel, both wealthy. Solomon, so much so that the Bible even says, none had been as wealthy as him uh, before or since. Some of us stood just a couple of weeks ago in a garden, believed to have been the garden of uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Underneath of that garden, there is a cistern that holds, what they say, 250,000 gallons of water, something like that. It's the fourth largest cistern in all of Israel. And it was Joseph of Arimathea's garden. It, it was, he was a rich guy. And, and the Bible does not say that there is anything wrong with wealth at all. And as a matter of fact, I'm convinced that all of us would be more wealthy if we'd simply take God at his word. You know Malachi chapter 3? Malachi chapter 3 says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I believe if we would get a hold of that verse and take God at his word, he says, try me now, he says, prove me now, he says, I dare you to trust me in this matter, I believe we'd have more wealth. Now, I'm not preaching a health and wealth gospel, don't get confused. But I do believe it's a principle in the Bible that we would see more if we would take God at his word. So I'm not saying that wealth is wrong. But when the accumulation of wealth takes the place of God in our life, it's an idol. Is it not? It's an idol. First Timothy chapter 6, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Jesus gave an illustration of this. Luke chapter 12, when he told about the rich fool. You can read about that. The rich fool who his whole life was about accumulating more and more things until finally his life was over. And God said, thou fool, whose is it going to be now? And so wealth can be an idol that some struggle with today. I think health can be an idol that some struggle with today. Paul said bodily exercise is a good thing. He said it this way. Bodily exercise profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so when the pursuit of bodily health becomes something that takes the place of God in our life, even that can be an idol. I think some people have trouble with the idol of family. Family. And now some of you are going to get mad at me now. But this is what the Bible says. 
All I can do is tell you what the Bible says. Jesus said, family must not come before him. Isn't that what he said in Luke chapter 14? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's one of the harshest statements Jesus ever made in the Bible. But isn't that what he's saying? Family cannot come before me. Nothing comes before me. And yet in our culture, family oftentimes trumps God, does it not? Family activities trump God activities much of the time. And remember our definition, anything that takes the place of God can become, can be an idol. So our public school says to parents, Sundays are for fun and sports and not for God. And so we listen to the public school. Parents say okay. Our kids say to their parents, there are so many fun things to do on Sundays. It's the only day we have to play. Let's not bother with church. And parents say okay. And so family becomes an idol. And the thing is we listen to everybody but God. God says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it, Proverbs 22.6. God says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. Why can't we just believe God when he tells us if we just give our kids to him, raise them his way, it's all going to work out the way he wants it to. Instead, so often in our culture, we sacrifice our children into the fires of our culture's Molech and wonder why they turn away from God. Family can become an idol. Career can become an idol. I read a fascinating story just yesterday. It was a story actually about women in the workplace. But there was a line in this story that jumped out at me, which I, it, just, it spoke to me because it's the way I feel. It said this. It simply said, for most people... Contrary to myth, work is just work. And this was an article about careers and people who are striving to get ahead and how people love their careers. And this person said, for most people, work is just work. And I thought, amen. Because that's the way I feel about my secular career. It's just work. I'm not one of these people who, who, uh, when I retire one of these days, I'm going to drop dead the next day because my whole life is over, because it was all invested in my career. I don't think so. I can find all kinds of things to do with my time, I am sure. But there are some folks who are like that. Some folks who their career is their idol, and they invest everything into that. I have a friend who was telling me one time about how he he had had a particular job. I don't remember where he worked. But he got fired. He got laid off from the job. And as he was sitting across the desk from his boss, and his boss was giving him this bad news, he, he was trying to explain to him how the company just could not live without him. And he was trying to say to them, you know, look what all I do here. Look, how, how are you going to get along without me? And his boss looked at him and said, you know, if I had a bucket of water next to this desk, and I were to put my hand into that bucket of water, and pull my hand back out of that bucket of water, you'd never know my hand had been in that bucket of water. And he said, that's exactly how it's going to be when you leave. Oh. Oh. That, that had to just pierce. And yet it's true with all of us, is it not? We invest our life in our career. When our career is over, it keeps right on going. What did we do? What did we accomplish? It ought not to be our idol. You know, the whole world thought that the Apple Computer Company would drop dead when Steve Jobs was no longer there. Steve Jobs has been in the grave for how long now? And it marches right on. As if he had never then career can be an idol and then uh, uh, one more i'll mention and then i'm sure you can think of others but pleasure can be an idol pleasure paul said to timothy know this 
that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Boy, that reads like the record courier, does it not? Every time I read that verse, I think how appropriate that is to our day. And to many in our society, one of the idols that they struggle with is pleasure. Given the opportunity to worship the Lord, serve the Lord, or do something fun. I think worshiping the Lord is fun, but others would say other fun. They'll choose the fun. I like golf. I happen to stink at golf. But I like golf. Those of you who dare to come out for our pastor's masters in a couple of weeks will just find out how, how bad I stink at golf. But the fact is, on the Lord's Day, when it's time to worship, I need to do that instead. There are those who say that they can worship God on the golf course. I heard a preacher one time. He was talking to a guy, and the guy said that to him. He says, you know, preacher, I don't need to be in church on Sunday morning. I can worship God just as well on the golf course. And the preacher said, you're right, you can. But you won't. And that's the truth. You won't. And so all of these are just examples. I don't mean to froth them out, and I don't mean to make anybody feel bad this morning. I'm just trying to make a point. Do you get the point? Idolatry is just as alive and well today as it was in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in Bible times. Idolatry was a problem, and idolatry is a problem. So let me make three statements of application, and I'll be done very, very quickly. Three statements. Number one. Idolatry is not something that we grow out of, but rather something that we fall into. Think about this for a minute. Idolatry is not something we grow out of, but rather something we fall into. There is a thought amongst people of our day. It's probably been a thought of people of every age, but certainly we we believe it today. That we are somehow more advanced than those who have gone before. Isn't that kind of the thought that people have? That we are more advanced than people who go before. Uh, If you want to have a good check on that, go to some place like we just went to Israel or some ancient place that has millennia of history behind it and you'll be convinced very quickly that we're not that much more advanced than anybody else. Those who have gone before were easily as advanced as us, I think. Well, on the spiritual side of that discussion lies the belief that we're somehow too advanced to practice idolatry, right? That's something primitive people do. That's something cave people used to do. And, and we're advanced. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. We've outgrown that tendency. But you know what? According to the Bible, that is exactly the opposite of the truth. Idolatry is something that the pure and spiritual fall into. It's not something that people start out at. Let me read you a quote. We do not find in the Old Testament an ascending from idolatry to the pure worship of God. But rather, a people possessing a pure worship and a spiritual theology constantly fighting through the medium of divinely raised spiritual leaders religious seductions which nevertheless often claim the mass of the people. Listen to this sentence. Idolatry is a declension from the norm, not an earlier stage gradually and with difficulty superseded. Did you get that? That's an interesting thought. We need to meditate on that. Idolatry is a declension from the norm, not an earlier stage gradually and with difficulty superseded. Paul talked about this, did he not, in Romans chapter 1. 
Flip over there for just a second if you want to follow along. Romans chapter 1. Just read a few verses here. And you'll see that he talked about this very thing. Starting in verse number 18. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. Romans chapter 1 is all about the slow slide of mankind into sin. And notice they knew God in the first place. Notice it didn't start with them being primitive and, and, and already being an idolatry and coming. It was the exact opposite. They knew God and slid into this matter of idolatry. So idolatry is not something primitive people practice and grow out of. It's something spiritual people can fall into if they're not careful. You remember our earlier discussion about all the different... Idols. Do you remember the discussion of Molech? Do you remember how we described Molech? Listen to what it says. It says, Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and the most horrible idol in the scriptures, children were sacrificed to this uh, Semitic deity. Solomon built an altar to Molech at Tophet in the valley of Hinnom. Later, both King Ahaz and his godless grandson Manasseh sacrificed their children to this blood-demanding idol. Did, did you pick up anything weird in that particular definition? Did you hear the name Solomon in there? Solomon. Did you think about that? Solomon built an altar to Molech. Solomon, the godly son of David. Solomon, the one who when God said, ask me anything that you want, he said, give me an under, a wise and understanding heart that I might rule your people Israel. Solomon, who was a godly, godly man, but later in life slid so far that he built an altar to this vicious, horrible, bloodthirsty Idol! It can happen to the best of believers. To the best of believers. So we need to take the warnings of Scripture and not allow ourselves to get on that slippery slope. And so, that first application I want to make is idolatry is not something we grow out of, but rather something we fall into. The second is this. Idolatry is something we must consciously recognize and run from. (coughs) When we get to chapter 10... Uh, we are going to see Paul's suggested solution to this matter of idolatry, and you know what it is? Turn around and run. That's his solution. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says, flee from idolatry. And we'll talk about that more when we get there, but the point is, it's not something we dabble in. It's not something any of us is strong enough to deal with. It's not something any of us can handle. We say to ourselves, I'm spiritual enough to handle that. No. It's one of those things we just have to run from. So, Idolatry is something we must consciously recognize and run from. And then the third, and perhaps the most important of the applications I want to make is this. Uh, We have someone far better to worship, don't we? We have someone far better to worship. While we were in Israel, we went to a place called Caesarea Philippi. There's two Caesareas, at least two, that are mentioned, two that we visited. One is Caesarea Maritime, or Caesarea on the Sea. It's right on the Mediterranean. The other is Caesarea Philippi, which is the far north of the country. Been there three times now, and every time I think, this is, this is just an ugly place. There's nothing to see there. It's just, it's, it's kind of disgusting. 
This time, for the first time ever, our guide kind of made it, gave it some context to me. Because something happened at Caesarea Philippi, and it's described in Matthew chapter 16, and it's when Jesus took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and as he was there with them, he said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, you know, you're one of the prophets or something. He said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in his famous declaration, said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, at Caesarea Philippi, there's really only one thing that they ever take you to see, and it's a, a false uh, temple. It's a temple to the god, the false god, Pan, which is still there. And so you see this, the ruins of this temple, and, and uh, you think about Pan, and you, you, you study what happened there, and it was a place, all kinds of, of uh, uh, ritual prostitution and disgusting behavior that took place in the worship of Pan. And the question has to be, why in the world would Jesus take his disciples to that place? Uh, ever. But then think about what he did. He took them to that place. He sat them down in the midst of all that and said, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I think what Jesus was doing, I think what Jesus was doing was saying, who are you going to worship? You're going to worship the false gods or you're going to worship the real God? Now, there are idols in the world. Who are you going to worship? And of course their answer was, you, Lord. Look at our text. <laughs> I'm at the very last part of my message, and I'm finally going to tell you what our text is. Chapter 8, verse number 6. That's the verse I'm looking at today, and I'm thinking about through this. For us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. I think we need to worship the Savior. No matter what idols there are in the world, we need to worship the Savior. For in him we live, in him we move, and in him we have our being. Well, that's just some introduction because we'll talk about this more as we go through the next few chapters. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. But I wanted to deal with that one particular thought. Idolatry. And so I wonder this morning in closing, what about you? What about you? Some of us this morning might be on that slippery slope. Some of us might be sliding down into idolatry. There might be something, anything. Maybe it's one of the things I mentioned. Maybe it's something else that has somehow managed to get higher in your life than God. Is God first? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And the solution is twofold. If there is something like that in our life, we need to first of all see it. Recognize the idol for the evil, evil it is. If, if, if somebody was up here right now sacrificing a child on the altar to Molech, we would all be appalled and astonished and we would think how evil it is. And yet, if I'm reading my Bible right, every idol is just that evil. So we need to see it. Recognize it for what it is. And then we need to flee it. You know, there's, there's nothing to think about here. Every Lord's Day we give an invitation. There's nothing to think about here. If there is something in our lives that is an idol, we need to see it and we need to flee it immediately. Nothing to think about. Just give it up. Just give it up. And I guarantee you that you will never regret turning from that and turning to the one true God. Because only good things await those who trust the Lord. Only good things await those who are in Christ.